Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Fabio Lanza about his new book, Behind the Gate, Inventing Students in Beijing. Columbia University Press published this in 2010. In many ways, this is a reader's and an interviewer's dream, because the book is laid out in an... Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Fabio Lanza about his new book, Behind the Gate, Inventing Students in Beijing. Columbia University Press published this in 2010. In many ways, this is a reader's and an interviewer's dream, because the book is laid out in an extraordinarily careful, thoughtfully organized, and clear way that lets Lanza come up with a way of telling and communicating a story that winds up being really sophisticated, really, really rich, and really complex, but complex productively. So it's a story that centers on the events around the May 4th movement, um, specifically at Beijing University in 1919. And it's a story about not just what was happening um, with the reforms in the university, reforms in the way the community of people who were teaching and learning and studying and eavesdropping at the university happened, but also it's a story of the emergence and transformation of some of the basic categories that we tend to take for granted in thinking about history in general and Chinese history, modern Chinese history in particular. These are categories like students, like city, monuments like Tiananmen, the Tiananmen Gate or um, the area of Tiananmen Square. We tend to retrospectively attach meaning and significance to these concepts, to these monuments, to these areas, based on what we know about their history from, uh, let's say, 20th century, early 20th century to now. What Lanz is showing here, though, is that particular ways of signifying emerged at a very specific moment as a result of very particular lived practices that made new forms of politics, new forms of living, new forms of urban space, and new forms of being in the world possible in a way that they weren't before. So this is a book that's really fascinating for anybody interested in a very a very careful and a very rich and textured account of the history of concepts for anyone interested in Chinese history, in the history of modernity and what it means to think with the concept of modernity, but also for anybody who's currently living in or engaged with on some level academia today and right now. And if you listen to the interview, when we get to the end, um, you'll hear us talking a little bit about part of the book in which he's explicitly drawing these connections between the case study of the book at hand and larger issues that are emerging in the practice of living in and with academia right now. Um, so it's a, it's a really interesting and very resonant story on many different levels. 
it was fabulous um, to talk with Fabio about it. And it's, I learned a whole lot about the process and I hope you enjoy listening to the interview as much as I enjoyed having it. We're here today to talk with Fabio Lanza about his book, Behind the Gate, Inventing Students in Beijing. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Fabio, and thank you so much for taking the time on a very hot day to talk with me about the book. Well, thank you, Carla. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Fabio, can you start us off, um, as is traditional for New Books in East Asian Studies, by just saying a little bit about what brought you to the field? How did you get interested in and start working on the history of modern China? Uh, I wish I had a good answer for this. I've been looking for one for years, and the only one I have is not satisfactory, and it is uh, I was 18 and I was bored. Uh, I, I, you know, I come from Venice, Italy, um, so for the Chinese, it's usually, oh, they don't even ask why I'm doing Chinese history. They say, Marco Polo, of course, you're Venetian. <laughs> But uh, for me, I was 18, I was out of high school, and I had to pick a specialty. I had to pick, you know, the, the college system is different in Europe, so I had to pick something to do. And I didn't know anything about China. And um, uh, there was uh, something called Oriental Languages and Culture in Venice, so I thought, well, I don't know anything about China, I'll do Chinese. And uh, I was lucky, uh, I guess. I... I went to China eventually, uh, and I loved it. And I have enjoyed Chinese uh, China stuff since. As for history, I don't know exactly. Um, I promised my dad uh, that I will never be an historian because he was obsessed with history. And so I said I will never be a historian. And he, and he said, okay. And then one day, I, at the end of my college career, I was thinking... I was working on something related to this, and I thought, oh, I'm an historian. And uh, that just happened. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, I was interested in politics uh, and uh, activism, and so that led to, I guess, to the modern part and to contemporary China and so on, so, you know, to the 20th century. But yeah, it, it, as many of these things, it just came at random, I guess. I think every time I try to answer this question myself when someone asks me, it's different. I think 20 different times I give 20 yeah. different answers, right? Because it's all this kind of retrospective construction yes, of a memory exactly. of ourselves, which is actually um, very related to the kinds of phenomena that are going on in the book itself. So, And we'll get to that. So um, the book that we're talking about today, Behind the Gate, looks at the ways that students, um, well, it looks at lots of things, but in one of the things that it does especially is look at the way that students um, as a category were produced both because of and through the practices and struggles of the years surrounding May 4th in 1919. So you're mm-hmm. arguing here, and, and we'll talk about this at much greater length, I, I think, in the course of the interview, that it, rather than pre-existing um, 1919, students actually only emerged after and as a result of the events and the practices and the kinds of spaces produced by 1919 as a fixed notion within a new tradition and connected to a specific place. So this is just a very quick, very broad overview of one of the important arguments that comes up in the book that we're talking about. Can you say a little bit about, sort of now that you've um, told us a little bit about what brought you to the field in general, what brought you to this specific um, focus for your research and to this set of issues in particular? Oh, that's uh, it's another long story, and, and um, but I'll try to make it short. I, 
I was interested in, in, in students' activism and education uh, uh, in college already. I, that might have to do with the fact that I was in college when Italy had uh, a couple of years of fairly intense political activism in the 90s, and also because I was supposed to go to China in 1989 for the first time, mm-hmm. and, and I didn't go. I went the, year, the following year. Uh, so I, I guess that's biographical, and, but, but it's also, you know, what it is. Uh, so I, I got interested, I guess, in political activism to an extent. And education, um, I think, was, again, a self-reflexive uh, point. Uh, I, 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 I was a student at the time. I wanted to be a researcher. I wanted to be stay in academia. And I thought the only way I can do it is thinking deeply of what I am doing here and what people do here and how people act. So the two, I think, political activism and student activism sort of coalesced in this, um, in this particular interest. Um, and I think I came to my fourth in many ways backwards, going backwards from, uh, from I guess, a more specific interest in the 20th century and communist China and in post-communist China and looking backwards uh, to, a, to a moment to rethink, uh, if you want, some categories of the 20th century. So, this is, this is great, and I think um, readers who haven't already um, had the good fortune to read the book and read it closely um, will or should know. I'll say this f- um, for their benefit, and people who have already read the book will know this already. Um, that one of the really beautiful things that happens in the book, and one of the really evocative things, at least for me as a reader, that happens is a kind of reflection of precisely the kind of um, putting into dialogue of the now with the events that you're talking about in history that you just recounted for us in your biographical account of your own coming to this topic. I mean, there are several places in the book where um, in ways that respect the context that you're talking about and don't, you know, function teleologically or don't uh, make any of those mistakes, you are um, kind of elucidating and putting into dialogue contemporary academic university issues with um, the issues that you're talking about in the context of students and universities and, and 1919 and all the events and spaces surrounding that. And so um, this is just to say that I think there's a really subtle but really effective way that our moment right now and um, the practices of being a student and being a member of academia um, are, are really informed by um, and quite explicitly some of the work that you're doing in the book. And so I really, uh, really, really enjoyed that part of this. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's also, I think, an effort. And I'm glad you say that because it's really, uh, I, I try to, to put as much, uh, I mean, it's a first book, so it's more difficult, but I try to put a little bit more subjectivity, personal subjectivity of, of the writer into it and personal sort of, you know, uh, the, the subjective position of today in what I write. So there was an effort in that. And I'm glad it came true. It did. So speaking of um, the origins of this project, you mentioned that this was a first book and it originated as a dissertation, yeah? Yes, it did. So can you talk a little bit about that process of turning the dissertation into a book manuscript? Were there any major transformations, any major surprises or aspects of that process or that path that, um, that are particularly notable for you? It was an ongoing process of clarification, I think. Um, uh, true, I mean, in, in a longer, I, was, I would say it in a longer way. 
I uh, the clarification came through right in the dissertation. So I remember finishing my dissertation and writing the introduction uh, at the top of, of the dissertation and finalizing what the dissertation was about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wrote the I remember writing the, the introduction in one afternoon, like you know, twenty pages just just came out of me um, very quickly. And I thought, oh, that's that's what it is about. Now I have to rewrite it, knowing that this is what it is about. Um, and then there was the process of, the, of rewriting the book. Uh, there were not uh, uh, the structure of the dissertation reflects kind of the structure of the book. It's it's um, the various spaces, uh, chapters are in the same, uh, almost in the same order. Uh, the difference is that the book is uh, is much more material in it. There's more detail about uh, uh, some specific practices and some specific uh, um, things. Uh, there's more attention. There's just simply much many more details, uh, including, for example, I think I think I don't talk at all about the gown in dissertation. There's a, a chapter on the gown, uh, and 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 I think there's uh, there's also a more uh, refined, I hope more refined, uh, theoretical engagement with some of the specific issues in this chapter. Uh, the dissertation was kind of mangled in a way. You know, it's, it's an incomplete process. So, uh, um, yeah. And and also, I, uh, yeah, that was pretty much it. The, the epilogue is, is a new addition to it. So the, the last the last part is completely... And so as we get into the work itself, you've mentioned, or I've mentioned spaces, you've mentioned spaces. Um, let's talk a little bit about space and spaces as a kind of conceptual anchor for some of what you're doing in the book. So the, one of the things the book does, and we kind of talked about this a little bit um, a, a little bit earlier in, the, in discussing the notion of students or in, in bringing that up, one of the, thing, the things that the book does really, really effectively is urges us as readers to move away from a kind of historical perspective that takes categories, categories like students, um, places, places like the university and like one university in particular that you focus on here, and communities and forms of communities as to, to taking them for granted, taking them as always already established, as you put it um, in the introduction of the book. And one of the kinds of categories that you help us, I think, very effectively reformulate is a category of or a way of thinking about and thinking with space. So one of the things that you're doing in the book is um, t- moving us from a place where we think about spaces as being firm, as being you know, monumental, as existing um, kind of unproblematically throughout history, and showing you how they're really brought into being through lived practice. And so can you talk a little bit about your engagement with, um, and the, with the notion of space in the book, with notions of space? How did this come to be so central for you? And can you talk about your, um, your, your interest in this concept and the importance that it has for you? in telling this story? Yeah, uh, well, it was, a, again, a relatively late discovery that came through, uh, in part, writing dissertation. And uh, and then, as I, as I told you, at the very end of the dissertation, I kind of realized what it was about. And, and space started as, as a, I think, as a, to be, to be very sincere, as a uh, crutch, in many ways, while I was writing dissertation, and only while writing and while reading more about theories of space, in particular, you know, Eric Lefebvre and, uh, and theories, theories of everyday life, uh, um, I got to the point where I realized that this category and this concept could help me articulate a series of different things that I was trying to put together. 
the attention to uh, lived practices first and foremost. So the attention to uh, you know a minute gesture of the quotidian, uh, clothing, uh, movement, uh, uh, daily life, uh, uh, but also uh, uh, the urban part of my book, which is very dear to me. I, I consider myself half an urban historian. So uh, the, the part about, you know, the relationship with city space, with, you know, uh, buildings and monuments and streets uh, and, and movement within the streets. So I was trying to put these things together and I didn't have a good um, theoretical way to put them together. And when I realized that if looking at space through a different perspective, exactly the one you mentioned, space not as a pre-existing construct of our uh, that frame our lives, but something that we actually continually construct every day in an uh, uh, act of dialogue with other forces, uh, usually you know much stronger than us, but you know but that we interact with every day, and meanings which whose meaning change every day. Uh, through our daily practice, and that helped me uh, to to reframe this thing, and also helped me to reframe what uh, pol- our politics and political activism works, uh, because I I could make sense of these of the practices that seem to be uh, meaningless of these particular students and other students and other activists uh, by showing how they actually produced a different kind of space. And that producing a different space, producing a different everyday, changing how lives are lived and changing how uh, the meanings of uh, uh, places and spaces is in, uh, interpreted is actually one of the goals, if not the goals, of politics and political activism. So I, I, I think it, it helped me combine all these things into... Uh, uh, Interconnected, uh, uh, interconnected framework, mm-hmm. and in fact, it forms the framework for the um, the body of the book itself. And so, each one of the parts of the book su- successively take us through different forms of the production of space, different ways that space was actively um, lived and produced in the context that we're, you're talking about in, in the um, story that you're telling. So, part one of the book, lived space, takes us into the everyday life of classrooms and dorms and the environments of the major university um, that acts as the kind of central locus of the story and of student activity um, in this story, which is Beijing University or Beida. So how did you come to focus on Beida as a space? And can you talk a little bit about the importance of um, Beida as a, as a, uh, well, we'll we'll get to the importance more generally of Beida as, as different kinds of space, but how did you come to Beida? And can you talk a little bit about the institution as it's uh, thinking of this. Yeah, I came to Beda because it was the obvious choice and because I was trying to avoid it, I guess. Um, uh, when I started this project and I said, I want to write the book on May 4th, people look at me, I want to write a dissertation on May 4th first, people look at me and say, no, don't do it. It's been done. And I said, well, it's, I don't think it's been done the way I wanted to do it. And, um, and they said, I, no. Um, so, I, I mean, it's, in many ways, this is uh, an attempt to re- rewrite that particular history. And to rewrite the particular history and to rewrite the history to a particular 
um, use of uh, the the memory of that history and and the the, the tradition of the history, the legacy of the history, the the Peda, the, the Mayford myth, if you want, the Mayford legacy. Uh, Mayford is this huge signifier. I thought the only way was to tackle the big target, to tackle the the big name, you know, and, and you know, Peta is identified more closely than any other place with Mayford. Uh, it's the place, you know, where Chen Tosu was teaching, when Yusun was, where Yusun was teaching, when Tsai Yonpei was the president, uh, all the, you know, all the who shows there. So everybody was, everybody was there. It is the place of of May 4th, and I thought, you know, if I have to rewrite this thing, if I have to rethink how uh, uh, students and university as categories work in this period and they were creating this period, I have to look at the university. And that was the university in, in so many ways. It was basically uh, still, I think, in 1919, the only public, it had been for many, many, for a couple, for about 20 years, the only public university uh, in uh, in China, uh, so uh, it was the university, and uh, and today still, uh, and that's the interesting to me, the interesting connection. Uh, it is the place that claims the legacy of uh, of that university, the you know the first university in China, the legacy of the May Fourth University. So one of the really fascinating things that's happening in this chapter as we move to um, a point in your argument at which you're going to show the emergence of, by the end of the book, students um, as a coherent category, um, in this part of the book, you are not only showing that uh, you're not only destabilizing our notion of students in China as this pre-existing coherent thing, you're also destabilizing our notion of Beida and of this university as a stable, coherent uh, object. And you're actually arguing, I think, really successfully in here that this university in many ways comes into being in a new way as a result of the May 4th period and as a result of the kind of student activity that's going Going on there. In fact, I think one of the things that you say here, um, and I'd, I'd love if you could talk a little bit about this, because I think this opens up a lot of issues um, uh, that are happening in this uh, chapter, in this part of the book. You say the unifying characteristic of Beida through the 20th century is that it had no unity. So can you talk a little bit about what that means and how that gets us to some of the larger issues that are animating this part of the book? Well, yeah, it, it, this actually came out of reading a lot of... Um, um, I don't know how to call it, but I guess celebratory literature of uh, of the history of Peta. Uh, a lot of it came out in '98 when Peta celebrated the you know centennial. Um, so there was this outflow of publication about the the glories of you know really beating their chest and saying how great we are. Uh, and, and there was a celebration of this long tradition of, you know, intellectual continuity and intellectual preeminence and political preeminence. But it always reflected one particular characteristic that these people saw the the, the, the long history of Ita as a, ling, a long history of a place that had really no unifying characteristic, if not the unifying characteristic of being a collection of uh, individuals. Uh, very uh, solipsistic and 
you know, sort of almost asocial individuals. So that the school that did not have a school tradition, if you want, it was an anti-communitarian place. I call it. I think I'm sort of born in a book. You know, the, the school that had no community, whose tradition was to have no community. Um, and I found it very strange. And I and I and I, you know, thought, okay, let's let's look at what actually this means and when this tradition gets formed. And it actually, this tradition gets formed, as you uh, pointed out, uh, in the Mayfair period, or in the years preceding exactly the Mayfair period. You know, when you have you start having this description of people that uh, are really behaving in that way, uh, and also not just a tradition of not just people behaving that way, but actually uh, physical uh, constraints and social relationship with the city that made the place of the university and the space of the university particularly difficult to define. Uh, I, uh, I speak about, uh, you know, the fact that it was difficult at Beta in the, you know, after 1917, for example, to see, to, to discriminate who was a student and who was not a student mm-hmm. because people could just attend classes, uh, Legally or illegally, I mean, they were, uh, they could be admitted to the auditors, but they could just go. And many of them who live around the university just took classes and walked in and used the dorms, used the facility of the school. Um, so that was a very uh, strange uh, uh, distinction to me. And then, you know, and that fractured from the very beginning the idea that there was a precise student community and a precise uh, boundary of the university space itself, and that leads to redefine. Okay, uh, what what is a student then? Um, and if a student is not defined, what practices define the beta student through this period, so that it gets encapsulated in the particular uh, memory of the following um, years. So, so let's actually talk a little bit about that, because this is, um, as you mentioned, this is a really fascinating part of the book where you're looking at the ways that everyday practices are constituting a new way of uh, of kind of forming a politics, right, and of creating mm-hmm. a kind of sense of communities in this profoundly non-communitarian space. So it's unclear who the students are. The teachers are really wacky too, right? So there are all these stories in here. I particularly liked the one of um, this teacher, uh, Gu Hongming, who's a Qing loyalist who keeps his cue and he comes to lecture with his servant um, who like fills his pipe and pours tea for him while he's teaching. I mean, it's this really fascinating um, picture of a lot of very different kinds of people, some very eccentric, um, who are living in this place that doesn't really exist as a coherent place yet and are helping to bring that into being at the same time that the whole curriculum of the university is moving toward a celebration of individualism, right? And of the sort of individual motor of learning and spirit. So it's this fascinating set of tensions that are producing um, this movement and producing these categories. Now, in um, later on in this uh, part of the book, in the second chapter, you actually take us through some of the forms of lived experience that are going on to um, constitute 
an image of what the Beda student was from this very hybrid collection of people who are, some of whom, you know, were not even, many of whom were not even registered. Um, so yeah, let's talk a little bit um, about that. So in the second chapter, you're looking at forms of lived experience by um, the, the, the people who would go on to constitute this category of students that include dress and that include a certain attitude toward frugality. So can you talk a little bit about these, um, these two aspects of what constitutes the student and the everyday uh, lived practice of the student in, in terms of the importance of that for generating the argument that you are in this part of the book? Yeah, these are these are uh, again. It was another uh, strange discovery that you know they. Um, I, I'm trying to reframe some of this practice in in a more um, sort of uh, political way, in, in a way that makes sense uh, politically. Uh, and I, in the there is an, there is almost an obsession with. Um, uh, in the in the in the literature on Peta and the literature in the mem- in the memoirs about Peta about how the Peta student looked and how different they looked, um, and I was kind of uh, I always found it strange because it, you know they look they, they they obsessed that they look different in this period that they were always wearing a very shabby patchy gown that they were dirty uh, they were not. Uh, Usually dress in Western suits, um, unlike the people at Tsinghua, that they were sort of looking old. You know, Peta was the oldest school in the country, so he was, you know, the old school, but the students were also old in the sense that they looked like not athletic, not, you know, uh, they didn't look like the students of, you know, the missionary school of, of, of Tsinghua. Uh, and and I and I found that, that that particularly strange. This is usually reinterpreted in history, in historical literature, on this period as a sign of, uh, if you want, the traditional legacy that the students were the literati of of their time. You know, like the literati were you know were not supposed to be engaging in physical activity, and were supposed to be sort of uh, uh, weak and feeble. Um, and physical prowess was not a, pro- a point. These students followed the tradition, and they wore the gown because the literati wore the gown. So I went and looked up the gown and and what it means. And you quickly realize that a gown is not a gown is not a gown. Uh, so the the male gown that the students wore was uh, a modern invention. It was not uh, the same gown that the literati wore. Uh, it was a very specific modern uh, uh, form of clothing, and it lasted only for a short period of time. At a certain point, it seems Beijing, Beijing University student shifted in their attire uh, by the mid twenties and wore uh, other kinds of uniforms. Um, so I wonder why? Why in this period? Why? Why chose the gown in this period? And I and I don't have a good answer for that because there's no clearly specific, uh, you know, historical justification. But by combining this particular uh, choice of attire with the practices of uh, frugality, I, I, I try to interpret the gown as a, uh, a form of. Uh, as a choice in terms of uh, uh, everyday life, but also in terms of resistance of the body, uh, you know, in a, in a point in which the state is trying to impose uh, more and more discipline on the body of the citizens in, in China as, in, as everywhere, you know. This is the period of the emergence of physical education, of uh, 
military training of the idea of the disciplined body, the mara of the nation, as uh, uh, Andrew Morris called it. Uh, I see the choice of the gown as an act of uh, resistance, if you want, an act of uh, in which you say, no, I'm, uh, the, 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 the gown protects the body from being drilled, trained, and scrutinized. Uh, but also, the gown was dirty and patchy, and I look at it as a part, as a symbol of the other side, which is the frugality that you mentioned. Um, uh, the students in this period, uh, despite their own um, uh, fragmentation and their own fragmentary and individualist character, was also in, were also involved in a series of collective activities. Uh, and some of them took frugality uh, as a center, as a central uh, defining trait. Mm-hmm. Um, and frugality here means, you know, uh, restriction of expenses, but also a different way of dealing with uh, uh, communitarian life, on everyday life, and relationship to uh, money and capital. So, uh, combining this different aspect, I, I see the frugal practices, all this strange association that try to combine work and work and study, um, uh, communitarian life, and uh, uh, you know, and and working together, studying together, uh, as a, a moment of trying to rethinking. Uh, in which the students of Beijing and Beijing University were trying to rethink together with other young people around the world, because similar associations are formed in Japan, in France, in everywhere, uh, try to rethink a new way of dealing with the emergence of capitalism, basically, of, you know, of the changes in everyday life produced by capitalism. So I see them as a political uh, form of political action and, and a form of political action, again, embedded in very minute and uh, seemingly relevant details of everyday life, which have to do with what you wear and also uh, where you live, with whom you live, and how you plan your expenses. And it's also really um, a really wonderfully subtle part of the argument because you might look at a shabby robe and, and see that as evidence of a lack of concern, right? A sort of an absence of um, activity. And in fact, instead, you're actually turning this around in this part of the book and recasting it and reframing it as a, an act of deliberate a, a lived choice, right? Um, and so yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a way of thinking about shabbiness as a, a form of activism and in a way that's, I think, really interesting. Yeah, I, I try to do that. <laughs> So as we move into the book, as we move to the second part, we move from um, a study of lived space to a study of intellectual space. Part two of the book looks at Beida under the leadership of Tsai Yuanpei from 1917 to 1926. And this is a period in which Beida actually undergoes a pretty radical reforms, as you show in the book. These reforms, I think... Explicating these reforms and the nature of these reforms lets you, in this part of the book, situate this within a larger set of concerns about the relationship between the university and the state. So can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that Beida is reforming in this period and how this helps us understand the larger issue of the negotiation between the university, uh, negotiation of positions between the university and the state? Yeah, well, it's, it, this is actually, I think, um, this was the most difficult chapter to write because um, I, I didn't uh, t- 
there, there is a fair amount of literature on the specific reforms, and it's it's they always been viewed as you know the liberal university, you know the, the creation of this individualist approach to the university and the individual. Um, but but I I wanted to shift the, the analysis, and particularly as you say, to relationship to the state and to the nation state, if you want, and the, and and I see this as a symbol of what university is in general. You know, since it's uh, the modern university, since its inception, uh, if you want, from the German model of of uh, of uh, William William von Humboldt. Uh, but but uh, the. The university uh, as a specific and particular and always contradictory relationship to the state and the nation, in the sense that many universities, and this one in particular, are state-funded and are state creation. They are supposed to be an, often a part of a bureaucratic structure. There is a ministry of education. The president of the university is usually appointed by the state in this case, and many state schools in this country, for example, have a board of regents and connection with the state. Uh, but they also, since the very beginning, since the very beginning of the idea of the modern university, they claim a specific separation, a specific distance from the state. And I think that the case of Pita under Sayonpei, this um, separation and this distance was taken seriously. It was not just an act of, you know, uh, the general liberal shift or the general professionalization of, of the intellectual, but it was actually an attempt to rethink what the university is uh, and how a university can be uh, a public university, but also separated at the distance from the state. And, uh, you know, Tsai tried to do it in many different ways by eliminating a bunch of disciplines that he considered to be too practical or too bureaucratic. He never managed to eliminate uh, law school, for example, but he wanted to. Um, but, you know, and make this university as a place for research and a place for uh, uh, really individual uh individual striving to, to find uh, answer for uh, a question that had nothing to do with the state, in which the state could not intervene. And he was actually always uh, problematizing this issue of what the relationship of, you know, his, his specific relationship as a public servant, uh, but also the student relationship with the state always was, and what the student relationship with politics eventually was when May 4th eventually explodes. So this is part of what I try to do in this chapter. The other second part, I try also to define, to point out that the learning in a university is also not tied to any specific national boundaries. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a Chinese university. There is no such thing as a Chinese university. There is no such thing as an American university. There is no such thing about a French university. There are obviously such things, but you know, in theory there is not. Because the idea is that what we strive to find is uh, uh, potentially universal. Mm-hmm. And, and again, this is uh, full of pitfalls and problems, and we all know these problems. But it doesn't, I mean, I, I wanted to take the effort that Sai and his colleagues and the student did in Spirit seriously. Because, uh, you know, uh, trying to find a way to define a space for the university that was, again, potentially separated, or at least at the distance from the state and the nation. Great. Um, thank you very much. 
So as we move into the third part of the book, we move from intellectual space and we move to political space in the third part of the book. Part three looks at the student demonstrations of May and June 1919 as part of a struggle over and a part of a way to understand and reconcile political boundaries. And you're arguing here um, in, in one of the chapters, as you put it, that the apolitical stance of the of university reform, the kinds of reforms we just talked about, actually allowed students to redefine the political itself. So again, you have this um, emergence of forms of life coming out of a tension between what we would might think of as dichotomous opposites, but you're actually showing that this is um, a very productive tension, and in fact, this is the ground from which these categories that we now identify as paradigmatic of this period um, were formed. So there's this tension here between two forms or two different kinds of politics. On the one hand, we have a politics that's identified with a kind of activity or a privileged activity of the state. And on another, on the other hand, and at the same time, you have a politics that is identified with the kind of individual autonomy and individual subjectivity that these reforms of Beda were trying to bring about and trying to um, enable and enact. So you talk in this part of the book about the formation of study associations as a, a way to kind of constitute alternative organizational practices, right? You're yes. also then um, sort of leading us here into um, a, a discussion in the fifth chapter of the ways that in May and June students actually physically left the school, moved to the streets, and really in this way made the boundaries of the university even more porous in even more ways, in a way that um, it brought about some pretty significant change. So you say, um, so students are crossing many borders in this kind of moving out into the streets. Can you talk about this in the, in the context of the point at which we are in the story in the construction or emergence of students as a category. What's going on in their moving out of the university into the streets, and how is this um, helping them form, helping us understand them as forming a category of students? Well, that's the moment, I think, when my the two processes I try to outline in the book, one is um, the first being the, the particular politicization of these specific students, so the, the involvement in activity and, and, and you know the, 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 the progressive politicization of this particular cohort of students and up until the, the outward political administration of May 4th, and the other process being the creation of the category of student as we have known him through the uh, Chinese 20th century, Kind of coincide and come to come to sort of uh, uh, connect, uh, and they come to connect specifically on May fourth and in nineteen nineteen and the following um, month of June. Uh, this is the moment when you know students appear uh, outwardly on the street and appear. Uh, if not as students, and I'll get to that in a second, but they, their image, the category of students become a symbol of a particular form of activism and a particular form of concern for national um, uh, uh, well-being and national welfare and national salvation. Uh, so 
but I, I, I try to keep the two processes slightly different at this point. So the students went out and protested in May 4, 1918, but I argue that they did not protest as students. That they actually did specifically made a specific effort of not protesting as students, so not as a particular category embedded with a specific political position that was already there. They are protesting as, uh, and they say explicitly as citizens, as Chinese citizens, as people that have a concern for the welfare of the nation, and. Actually, the repression of the movement or the uh, people who are opposing the movement, even benevolently, like Zion Pei, who say, no, you shouldn't do this, frame it in the opposite way. They frame it saying, no, 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 you're students. You're not supposed to do this. Mm-hmm. Or students don't are supposed to do other things. Students are supposed to you know, uh, grow up and learn and be good for the nation in the future they're not supposed to be involved in politics. And the students say we're not involved in politics in the sense of being involved with the state. We refuse that connection. We always refuse that connection, but we are involved in politics in the sense we, we have a concern for the nation. We, can, we are not, how can a student not be a citizen at the same time? Mm-hmm. And the repression, uh, and, and I say in, in legally, but also physically, uh, in the following, especially in June, uh, takes the form precisely of what they call a strategy of separation, of separating the students from the citizens, of separating or making the students uh, a specific category that cannot be involved uh, in politics, that has no right to be involved in politics. So uh, they, uh, for example, have laws and decrees that say, you know, students are not supposed to do this, students are not supposed to do this, students have specific uh, roles in society, they are too young, too excitable, and so on and so forth. And then eventually when students go out and protest and lecture in the street and take over the streets of Beijing, they arrest them and put them in jail, um, although the jail is the school itself. So they close down close down two buildings of the school eventually and put a sign outside that says um, school prison number one, school prison number two, uh, and, and arrest the students and keep them inside because there are too many of them to put them in, in actual jail. So, you know, and I, I, I found this incredibly perfect symbolically because it's, it's, you know, it's taking the students and putting them back in their place. Students should not be on the streets. Students should be in the school, even if we have to turn the school into a prison. And, you know, and then you can play with school, prison, as disciplinary apparatuses and so forth. So forth there's all the story. But at the same time, this process, I think, um, makes the students, for the rest of the nation and for themselves, as a symbol, emerge as a category. Emerge as a category that we eventually know. The category we can make reference to, that the students, for example, in 89 could make reference to, and the call and say, we are the inheritors of those students there. The student, the, that category of students, still went out in the streets and you know, to cover the streets, and, and, and that concern for the national salvation. Students have this concern from 1919 on almost naturally, or supposed to have it naturally. But they didn't, not, that's not true in 1919. That's what I mean. mm-hmm. 
One of the things that's really interesting about this is that not only, so just to, as a little footnote, as a historian of science, right, who's reading this, not only um, is it interest, are elements of this story interesting um, for kind of obvious ways, right? Because you're, especially in the part of the book that you're mentioning, um, the importance of a kind of scientific vernacular or scientific truth to the reforms of Beda in mm. this period in, in the reforms, but also in terms of the narrative here, the invocation of porosity and the ways that students are sort of treating as porous what we might consider even membranes separating these areas of uh, the spatial city, areas of the dis uh, disciplinary spaces, political spaces that they don't necessarily want to be separated, whereas the you know people who are working against them or, or forces working against them are instead trying to reify those membranes. It does evoke a way of thinking about this in, in organic terms that actually is really interesting just in terms of um, scientific metaphor in the, in the history of science. So that's why that's why you need history of science. I never thought of that. Yeah, yeah this curiosity <laughs> of membranes. It's it's just it's it's interesting to me. I could have used I could have used osmosis in other terms. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I think um, yeah, I, th I think there's an opportunity maybe in the future. You've you've actually gotten me thinking about membranes um, in a way that I I never was before through just those you know describing this in terms of porosity and so so just as a footnote for other historians of science out there who may not otherwise think to pick up the book. It is relevant <laughs> in some ways in the history of science. Um, so, it's, okay, so speaking of types of space, as we move from part three to part four, we move from political space to social space. And this is a particularly fascinating part of the book. And as you mentioned at the beginning, um, you are, you, I think you mentioned something um, like you are at heart an urban historian. And, and this is really the part of the book that um, is just a wonderful, wonderful way of rethinking um, urban history through the motions and the mappings of students or what become students through the spaces of Beijing. So chapter six shows how marching and protesting students actually mapped out a new hierarchy, as you put it, of urban spaces in Beijing, including some monuments that we think of as sort of paradigmatically associated with student movements. They weren't at this time and that they only become um, associated as a result of this period. So one of those spaces is Tiananmen, um, yes. and I think that's probably a good place to start talking about this. So can you talk a little bit about the significance of Tiananmen here? Um, why did they start there, and how does this encapsulate the larger argument that you were making about the production and mapping of space um, by students in this part of the book? Well, uh I always accepted as a, I was I was always I was always taken for granted the fact that you know the obvious place to meet was in front of Tiananmen because because it's obvious I mean to everybody who's been in Beijing Tiananmen is Tiananmen you know it's the center mm -hmm. you know it's the center it's the now it's it was the location of power under the, the, the you know the, the Qing dynasty it is a location of power now you know even if Slightly on the side, but you know that's where the Junan High is basically. Uh, it's it's the location of mass meeting. Um, there is no there is no history, and I and I never thought that it was not obvious. Altina realized it was not obvious, <laughs> and that uh, just because there is a gate there, and the gate was one of the symbol, one of the main access, if not the privileged one, but that's another story to 
the the old site of power, the Forbidden City, um, that was not the same place. I mean, the place had changed meaning over time. And I try to illustrate, in this, especially in the, in, in the what is that sixth chapter, the, the chapter seven, chapter six and seven, uh, how the meaning of the location of the Forbidden City in the in the, in the if you're on the social and, and you know symbolic space of Beijing had shifted over over time after the end of the dynasty, um, and how we cannot think of Tiananmen in 1918 as we think of Tiananmen. In 1949, 1989, uh, or 1966, you know, or today, uh, the the uh, doesn't figure particularly in any recollection of the students. Uh, the memoir don't speak of the Forbidden City as a particular thing. He just assumed that you know this looming thing, this looming gigantic monument, would influence magically the thought of everybody who lived nearby. And there's no reason to for that because monuments are not um, unchanging in significance. And, uh, and I think Musil, right? There's nothing as invisible as a monument. Uh, but but so this, I argue that basically they meet there. Uh, they meet there because it was first. It was one of the few open spaces in in um, uh, in the area. It was a large. Uh, Sort of space, but it has less to do with the with the gate itself. It has less to do with the Forbidden City. And I, I, I point out that the students met in front. Basically, they were not looking at the gate. They were looking. They were leaving the gate behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were looking at the street in front of them. They were looking at the space that there was not Tiananmen Square obviously at the time, but they were looking at the space in front of them, which led to on the one end the legation quarters, who were nearby. Uh, on the side to what was Central Park, um, uh, which was a new invention, a post-Ching invention, that was another place for uh, meeting people and also for uh, political rallies before. And they were looking at the area just south of, of, of the city, of, of Tiananmen, which was uh, a bustling commercial area, which made perfect sense if you want to distribute leaflets and make a political form of uh, you know, propaganda you go to a place where there are people. Uh, so I, I try to reframe the specific relationship that the students have uh, with, this, uh, uh, with, with the space of the gate specifically, hence the title of the book, but also uh, with the, eventually with the city in general. The, the power had shift, and the students, I, I try to make very clear, were not protesting for the first time, I think, in, in modern Chinese history, they were not protesting to the government. They, don't, to do, they do not march to the presidential palace or to the uh, you know, government, to the parliament, to the prime minister palace. They don't go there. They stand in front, giving their backs to Tiananmen, and march to the legation quarter, eventually to pr- present a protest, but also they give up leaflets to the people. It's, it's a street protest in the sense of taking over the street not looking at power to uh, with a request. Uh, so I think that's a specific shift. And it's a shift that embodied in the shift of political and social political meanings of the of urban space, which happens between 1911, if you want, and 1919 and following years. That's right. And you mentioned... Um 
in this chapter that this is also a period, and this is a, a time when the city is moving from being organized around monuments to being organized along streets and avenues. And so in a way, in their marching, in their protesting, the students are actually recreating a new city. Yes. Or creating a new city, rather, bringing a new city into being through um, their activity, through their marching, through their protesting. And I think it's a really fascinating part of the book. Yeah, there is no Tiananmen before. I mean, the, 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 the Tiananmen as we know it, the, the place you know of protest, which is still what we know it, of political rallies uh, up until, you know, 89, uh, did not exist before. They make it. Right. That's right. And Beijing actually doesn't exist in the same way um, no. before and after these these activities. So this is also, I think this is a particular interest to anybody interested in urban history, history of cities, in ways of considering um, built spaces as forms of text, but as constantly, as forms of text that are constantly coming into being and constantly changing. So as we move to the um, the last chapters of the book, we move with the students from the university out into the streets and then beyond. So the students are moving and you're tracing their movements in this chapter from the university to the neighborhood to the city and then outside the gates into the countryside. And then after they get out there, they then um, are ultimately retreating back into the university proper. And so there's this opening up and closing in that goes along with this, again, transforming category of students as a way of being. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sort of what's happening as they go out into the countryside and how do they eventually come back um, into back into the university and what are the consequences of that for how we understand students as a category? Well, that's that's a complicated part. It's a huge well, question. It's a huge question and and I and I eventually I wrote an article later about how these things ends, but um mm-hmm. uh uh, the, 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 the chapter traces the expansion of student activity throughout the city. So, you know, in, in lecture practices, first, you know, sort of semi-spontaneous uh, uh, and then eventually through, you know, the uh, popular uh, lecture groups, popular education lecture groups, you know, to organize uh, meeting at temples and special lecture halls and so on. And now they, they try to learn how to deal with the city. And how they, you know, fail eventually in a large part. You know, how they, how to, how they try to talk to commerce and what they talk about, and uh, how this is a process of learning uh, a new connection with the city. The the final part is are the students going out in the countryside in some villages around Beijing, which are basically now parts of the Beijing as we know it. Um, uh, and it's and it's it's a very sad part because it kinds of a it's a dismal failure in many ways. They try to get there, and they realize they don't have in large part the, the vocabulary, the means, uh, the ability, the knowledge to uh, interact with a larger social uh, space. You know, they don't know the countryside. They don't know the countryside. They, they have no idea how to you know relate with it, and they fail. You know, they this, they mock the local teacher. Uh, they are. They realize that women don't come out, uh, um, and, and they realize they don't have a, a strategy to to attract attention. At some point, I think it's a, they use a gramophone or something. That's the only thing that works. Um, but 
clearly. And, and I, I, I saw this as a sign and of, and this happens towards, you know, in the, in the early 20s. I see this as a sign of the extension to which, you know, you can do uh, uh, the, the, the politics of this particular student movement uh, can reach. And then, you know, at a certain point, uh, they have to stop. And, and what you see in the following months is a retreat to a more conventional space. Uh, when the students can still lecture, but they are given by the, 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 the municipality, the municipal government, a specific hall uh, near Beta in which they do these popular lectures, but it's very contained, it's restricted, it's measured. They don't roam the street anymore. Uh, so it's, it's, if you want, I see this as the end of that particular um, experiment. Uh, and, and it's not by chance that, that the, 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 the lecture uh, activities will be continued in the following years and 20s, but under a completely different regime, under basically communist uh, groups. Uh, some of them former students, but, you know, they're not the same thing. It's not, this, it's not a straight continuation of, of, of the same activity. Basically, you, you require, it requires a different politics to deal with this. Uh, uh, social, uh, new social spaces. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you so much. And sort of as um, I'll just, I won't ask you to talk too much about this, but I'll just mention for listeners: there's also an epilogue that takes us from the end of this story to um, possibly the end of the category of students, or the end of something about this category of students that we've been developing over the course of the book focusing in particular on the importance of the first phase of the Cultural Revolution as kind of the last manifestation of this this signifier that we've seen coming into being, the student signifier, um, as the name, I think as you put it in here, is the name of the possibility of political agitation and organization outside of boundaries imposed by the state. So that's Mm -hmm. another really fascinating part of the story. Now, before we close... um, there's only one more thing that I'd like to ask you before we sort of come to our concluding questions, and that's something that I alluded to at the very beginning, and that comes up in Chapter 3 quite explicitly, but that we didn't um, talk about in that context, and that is the resonances between this story and debates about the modern university in academia today. Um, and I ask this because um, this is something that explicitly comes up in the book, and it's perhaps going to be a special interest to um, listeners who might not think of themselves as being interested in modern Chinese history in particular, but who might be very, very interested in how this case or this example helps us see um, contemporary academia um, in a perhaps in a different way or in a different light. So is there anything about the, that resonance or that set of resonances that you want to mention or that you feel is particularly um, useful in thinking through these larger issues? Yeah, I, I actually was able to reframe this chapter uh, after reading um, Clark's uh, Academic Charisma and the Origin, William Clark's Academic Charisma and the Origin of the Research University, which is a fantastic book about English and German University. And Clark points out that you know, uh, this, this um, 
there's always an incomplete process of bureaucratization of the university because there's always something that escapes. And the history of the university is marked by, and the process of bureaucratization is not marked so much by you know, the power of the state, but it's, it can be seen in small details. And the contradiction of the university can be seen in very small details. He calls them the little tools of knowledge, you know, uh, arrangement of classrooms, syllabi, um, grading, uh, measurement of performance, and so on and so forth. Um, and I thought that's a, and, the, and these tools points both to the continuous effort of the state to control the university, but also the continuous effort of the university not to be controlled by the state, um, and the continuous ex, the, how the university always exceeds the control of the state for its own nature, the modern university. Um, and I and I thought this actually fit very well in the case of Pita because uh, this effort was not just. Uh, Subconscious, but he was very, very conscious. So at the same time, there was an attempt to uh, reform and rethink, and it was a collective attempt. It was an attempt on the side of the administration, but also on the side of the students, to collectively rethink and re, uh, re and change these little tools of knowledge. Um, debates on exams, for example, how long should you stay in, how, time, how much time should you spend in the classroom? Should we have a bell at the beginning of the classroom at the end of, of you know, at the beginning of the class or at the end of class? The, the, should we have, you know, class monitors and so on and so forth? You know, um, uh, what, what's the, what's the goal of, uh, of studying in a university and how can it be made more independent? How can it be more Subjective, more individual, more uh, act of collective research rather than uh, indoctrination for the benefit of the state and the nation. So I think, uh, I think in the case of Peda, and again, it's a, it's a short period, it's temporary, and I know it's probably failed in many ways, but. I think it's an important point if you're interested in the history of, uh, uh, not just in the history, but if you're interested in, in, if you're an academic and you want to rethink what we do uh, every day, because we're still um, in that same damaged and collapsing framework of the modern university, uh, to rethink what we do. I think this is a particular, a particularly uh, interesting case. Well, Fabio, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me about the book. There's so much about the book that we didn't actually have a chance to talk about. It's a very rich study, um, even as it's concisely written. There's a lot of material in there. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for our listeners? No, nothing in particular, but I uh, I like to think at this book, and I don't know if I'm uh, but I, I wrote this book with the idea that it was a China book, but it's also a book about um, how to study and how to try to study political activism in general. So I always think of this book as a, uh, I mean, I hope this book will be read outside the China field in many ways, in the sense that, you know, I think it is, uh, it, it, it's, it's very China-based, it's full of details about Beijing and China and Chinese students, but I also think uh, I also would like to think of it as, as, a, as a, I don't know, as an attempt to, to uh, deal with how people become political, how people get involved in politics, and how political categories are formed, shape, and inform our understanding more generally. So I think it as a case study. And, uh, and yeah, it's me escaping from China, I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, so now that this book is out and it's been out for a little while, um, what's next for you? What currently is occupying you? What, what are you passionate about in terms of academic projects? Right I have two projects, one uh, which hopefully will be finished and which is very strange. Um, and the second one, which is never going to be finished and it's very long. Uh, but so I'm working on a short book. Uh, uh, I hope a short book. Um, provisionally titled The End of Concern, uh, Global Maoism, Asian Studies, uh, and uh, the 1960s, uh, which is a parallel analysis of uh, the history of the uh, Committee of Concern Asian Scholars uh, in this country from 68 to very early 80s, and uh, a French Maoist group in, uh, in France, obviously, from on the same period. Uh, the, the goal is to rethink what uh, China meant. Uh, China with, you know, China meant uh, globally in the 60s and 70s. And how, in particular in the first case, uh, how our uh, discipline itself, how our field itself was shaped by the radical activities and radical intellectual activities that was... Uh, produced under the name of, you know, Maoism in China and so on and so forth. So that's the first project, current project, which is a strange project because it's not really about China. I call it my project about China with, you know, quotes. Uh, Actually, before you get to the second part, can I ask you a quick question about that? Yes. When you say, um, just, I'm, I'm asking you this in part because it's just in inherently interesting, but also in part because um, you can see in the introduction to the book that you're um, you're interested in, in the book we're talking about here in playing with narrative form and the possibilities of, of what a historical account can look like and in playing with that. So when you say a parallel history um, of these two um, uh, these two entities formally in terms of the structure of the book project, how are you thinking about that in terms of its its sort of architecture? You're actually asking the very difficult question because that's a question I cannot answer. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I actually, you're absolutely right. I want to write this book in a slightly different way because also because these books involve uh, uh, very specific personal histories um, and there is an enormous amount, I have an enormous amount of sort of heavy personal material that I don't know yet how to deal with. And I want, mm-hmm. I, I, I want, as I told you, I have a very uh, keen interest in this objective position of the author. And I still don't know how to write this. I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I've tried to write chapters, and I'm, I'm still trying to figure out uh, exactly how, how this parallel history will work. Uh, and how also I can give... Um, justice to I can do justice to both the theoretical engagement that, that the book wants to have and uh, the personalities, the personal the, the subjective the lived that comes out of these um, archives and these people that I've talked to uh, and I'm struggling very uh, yeah that's, that's going to be my next year <laughs> It's it's fabulous though, and it's it's at the risk of going on too long. And then and then I want you to talk about the, the second project. But the process of production through struggle that is involved, or that that happens as a result of trying to move between two 
trying to, you know, cross the porous membrane between two um, ostensibly unlike things is precisely the process through which the students in the book that we're talking about today actually created concepts. And I think, you know, that's precisely the way that it sounds like you will create this new way of thinking about China and history. So the struggle might be precisely the point. I hope so. I hope you're right. Okay, I'm sorry. So the next, the second project. But the next, the next project is much longer. And I want to write uh, uh, possibly a micro-history of, um, uh, of a small part of Beijing to revolution. The working title is Revolution in the Quotidian. Um, uh, uh, and basically the idea is to see how to a, mi- to a really a micro-space, like a, a, ideally it would be a corner of a street. Uh, but that's something like, you know, as a part of a, a district of, of the city of Beijing from 1952, 53 to 1983, so 30 years of change, and to see how the communist government uh, tried to actually alter everything, to alter politics and alter how people thought and uh, lived by altering everyday life, by making uh, structural changes to the city, structural changes to how people, where people lived, you know, like residency, how people went to work and how people were related to work and how people engage in work and leisure activity. So, um, and also to see how people actually uh, reacted to this change and took over the city in some instances, like the Great Forward, the Cultural Revolution, or even in more mundane, everyday instance in which this space were reappropriated for different uh, goals. This is clearly a gigantic project that requires an enormous amount of archival research. Uh, so that's why it's not my second book, because otherwise I will never get it done. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my big dream. And, um, you know, it, it's going to get done. Well, that's another fascinating project. Um, So I I can't wait to see both of these. Best of luck with your research right now. Congratulations on the book, um, Behind the Gate, that we're talking about. It's fabulous. And this whole conversation has given me a lot of food for thought. So thank you so much, Fabio. Thank you, Carla. It was great. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.